Share and enjoy, share and enjoy, journey through life with a plastic boy or girl by your side. Let your pal be your guide, and when it breaks down or starts to annoy, or grinds when it moves and gives you no joy, cause it seems that you had or it sex with your cat. Let oil on your wall or rent off your door, and you get to the point you can't stand anymore. Bring it to us, we won't give a fake, we'll tell you. In the words of our Lord and Master, hello everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the online legend that is the weekly Treks and Sci-Fi podcast. This is your weekly show that covers all things geeky, sci-fi related news, interviews occasionally, reviews, all sorts of other good stuff. But as you might have guessed, Rico's not here, so I guess I have to say in that regard, this probably isn't that special an edition of the Treks and Sci-Fi podcast. Rico's off doing whatever it is he does when uh, he gets somebody like me to host one of these things for him. So instead of his dulcet tones, you're going to have the pleasure of my rather different South London accent. You could, of course, have the pleasure of me trying to do an American accent, but you really wouldn't want to listen to that for however long this is going to take. And anyway, if we're talking about doing impressions, then we leave that to the expert, Mr Rick Moyer. So hi there, I'm Mike. I'm Feathers on the Tricks in Sci-Fi Forum. Assume you've heard of that if you've listened to the podcast for any period of time. If you haven't joined it, then you really ought to have done. I know I've been around on there for a year or so now. Originally joined up actually to comment on the podcast, but got sucked into the whole community thing that's going on there. Writing in the RPG now, and all sorts of other stuff. I mean, yes, it's largely sci-fi, but we get into all avenues of life on there. So uh, have a look around if you if you haven't looked at it. I'm sure if you are on the forum, I've probably wound you up at once or twice, so sorry about that. I've also put a couple of comments into the podcast before, so hopefully I'm not a completely alien voice to you, unless this is your first time of listening. If you're American, I guess I'm probably about as close to alien as you're going to get and still understand what I'm saying. If this is your first time, welcome. Don't worry, I'm only here for a week. So get through this one and then you can go back to the back catalogue. Have a listen to a few of those and find out how these podcasts are normally supposed to sound. This week, however, Rico's turned his command chair over to me, so I'm going to press all the buttons, twiddle all the knobs, and see what everything does while I have the chance. Screw this one up badly enough, and I may never get another. Why I'm doing this is a mystery, since I dislike the sound of my own voice recorded and played back. I know for a fact that editing this is going to be absolute torture, though with the sheer quantity of editing probably required to get an hour or more podcast together, I suspect I'll probably be cured of the like once and for all. But having gone through all that, once it's done, I think it's fairly safe to say that I'll probably never listen to this again. But actually, the, the, the why I'm doing it has a bit of a wider answer, because a few weeks ago, I sent an email to Rico with a suggestion of a topic he could cover in the podcast, if he felt so inclined. It's apparently one that's come up before, but not one that he's ever done and looked at. And uh, him being him, he promptly turned around the idea on me and said perhaps I could do it if I felt I knew something about the topic. So I did have to think a bit about whether that was really going to be a go or not, and I'm still not completely sure, to be honest, but I'm giving it a try. Effectively, I'd already decided to give it a go if the offer was made, so here we are, and let's get into it and, and see how it's going to go. So welcome to my take on the enigma that is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams Tertiary phase.
Now, the first thing I've got to say on all of this is that I've got no real idea of how much exposure this has got in parts of the world other than the UK. So it's quite possible there's probably only about three of us who've got any idea what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not going to apologise for that. Um, I'll pretend to be sympathetic if you actually join the forums and, and complain about it to me. I mean, if you aren't members, feel free to join up just to moan at me for, for that one thing. And, uh, as I say, I'll pretend to be sympathetic. Actually, if I had to guess, I'd say that Hitchhiker's probably had a fairly good coverage in, in terms of knowledge, and I think not only in the UK. I mean, these days I guess it could be a little bit more of a niche market than I realise, even in this country, because it's been around for a good long time now, over 30 years. Sadly, that implies that I've been around for over 30 years as well, which is slightly more depressing. I think it's also got fairly good coverage in the US and elsewhere. I mean, the fact that they made a, a big film in 2005 can't have done it any harm and sort of built its public profile a little bit, whether that extends back to all of the original forms that it exists in, I don't know. Certainly most of the people I mix with know of it, or probably know it, to the extent of being able to quote vast tracts of it in ordinary conversation. But that may be more of a comment on me, or the people I mix with, or possibly uh, the UK, I don't know. I suspect it's more the people rather than uh, society or the country as a whole, or maybe it's just a comment on the engineering community. Anyway, it's been a fairly big part of my sci-fi upbringing and uh, sort of sits fairly heavily in my background so hopefully it means I can say a few sensible things on the topic and if you're lucky some of it may even be interesting. Hello there my name is Med and this is David Frost. You're not David Frost. All right, I mean this is Mark and we are the present... Mark? All right get on with it. Okay and we're the presenters of Waffle on podcast and we like to talk about crap. TV broadcast between 1960 to 1999. Would you say it's crap? Some of it. Really? <laughs> Especially the British stuff. But we were having a podcast about that, so let's move up on that. Unbelievable. You can find us at the http colon forward slash forward slash waffleon.podbean.com. Do not smile when I say the word colon. I'm not. Meds and Kill there, hosts of the unique Waffle On podcast. Well worth listening if you've got an interest in uh, British, certainly British aired TV of that era. So first question I imagine people are going to ask if they're not familiar with the topic is, what's the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy about? And there's the first problem. Are you better off probably just saying, what's the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Once you start adding words like about to questions like that, it all starts to get a little bit complicated. In simplest form, Hitchhikers is the, the story of an Englishman, name of Arthur Dent. Apparently in early scripts he was down as Alaric B. Now, I've never met anybody in this country called Alaric B, and I'm not sure what use of a name like that would actually have done to this franchise over the years, because for me that would have killed it. I'd never have believed that some guy with a name like that lived in Sussex or Surrey or wherever he was supposed to have come from. But it's about this guy, Arthur Dent, and the things that happened to him on the day that he finds out his house is due to be demolished to make way for a bypass. And the way he finds out is that a bulldozer turns up in the front drive and starts to knock his house down, basically. Come off it, Mr Dent, you can't win, you know. Look, there's no point in lying down in the path of progress. I've gone off the idea of progress. It's overrated. But you must realise that you can't lie in front of the bulldozers indefinitely. I'm game. We'll see who rusts first. I'm afraid you're going to have to accept it. This bypass has got to be built, and it is going to be built. Nothing you can say or do... Why has it got to be built? What what do you mean, why has it got to be built? 
It is a bypass. You've got to build bypasses. Didn't anyone consider the alternatives? There aren't any alternatives. Look, you are quite in time to make any suggestions or protests at the appropriate time. Appropriate time? Yes. The first I knew about it was when a workman arrived at the door yesterday. Oh. I asked him if he'd come to clean the windows, and he said he'd come to demolish the house. He didn't tell me straight away, of course. Oh, no. First he wiped a couple of windows and charged me a fiver. Then he told me... But, Mr Dent, the plans have been available in the planning office for the last nine months. Yes. I went round to find them yesterday afternoon. You hadn't exactly gone out of your way to call much attention to them, had you? I mean, like actually telling anybody or anything. The plans were on display. Ah, and how many average members of the public are in the habit of casually dropping around at the local planning office of an evening? Uh, <laughs> it's not exactly a noted social venue, is it? And even if you had popped in on the off chance that some raving bureaucrat wanted to knock your house down, the plans weren't immediately obvious to the eye, were they? That depends where you were looking. I eventually had to go down to the cellar. That's the display department. With a torch. The lights had probably gone. So had the stairs. Well, you found the notice, didn't you? Yes. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the leopard. Ever thought of going into advertising? It also turns out to be the day that he discovers his planet's going to be demolished to make way for a bypass, which he finds out in much the same way when the construction fleet turns up. People of Earth, your attention, please. This is Prostetnik Vogon Jokes of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. As you will no doubt be aware, the plans for the development of the outlying regions of the western spiral arm of the galaxy require the building of a hyperspace express route through your star system. And, regrettably, your planet is one of those scheduled for demolition. The process will take slightly less than two of your Earth minutes. Thank you very much. Now, theoretically, this is a contemporary story, but given that it was written and broadcast, first of all, in the late 70s, then contemporary is obviously relative... To my mind, most of it actually dates fairly well, because it's certainly in the original form of the radio series, which is where it started, which I'll get into later. Only very little of it was on Earth. It was just this set-up section with the demolition of Arthur's house, and the rest of it was out in space. So as such, contemporary really doesn't mean anything, because I haven't got a clue what contemporary space-going society is like, and probably neither is anybody else on this planet. But there are a couple of things that might catch you out and, and do date it if, if you've not read it before. It's worth pointing out, in case you hadn't realised, that this is also supposed to be funny. It's not serious sci-fi. It started life as a, a BBC Light Entertainment project. So it is supposed to be imbued with all sorts of humour and to make you laugh. Whether it works or not is uh, really down to how you behave. To my mind, it, it's still very funny. It was quite unique when it was written and remains so now, as far as I can say. So as I said, the story's based around Arthur, things being demolished, and the major twist that basically sets up the rest of the story is when one of his friends, it turns out to be not from Guildford, which is just up the road from me, 20 miles away, but Ford turns out to be from Beetlejuice. None at all is exactly how much suspicion the ape descendant Arthur Dent had that one of his closest friends was not descended from an ape, but was in fact from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice. Arthur Dent's failure to suspect this reflects the care with which his friend blended himself into human society, after a fairly shaky start. When he first arrived 15 years ago, the minimal research he had done suggested to him that the name Ford Prefect would be nicely inconspicuous. Now, the thing with the name Ford Prefect is that I read this in the 80s, so what would I have been somewhere teenage years, probably? I read it a number of times then and since, 
And in my mind, it was always, ha, 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 the Ford Prefect sounds like it was a car. And it was only when I first voiced this at my father, I think it was, who looked at me a little oddly and said, yeah, but it was a car. That's the point of the joke. That's the humour. And really, that's about the only thing I find that, that dates the thing, because if you don't know what a Ford Prefect is, that goes straight over your head. So we have him from Beetlejuice, and he's on Earth as a rolling... Rolling? He's on Earth as a roving reporter for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is as it says, a guide to hitchhikers, different planets, things they can find, and basically sets up the the title of the series. I came for a week and was stranded for 15 years. But how did you get there in the first place? Oh, easy, I got a lift with a teaser. You don't know what a teaser is, I'll, I'll tell you. Teasers are usually rich kids with nothing to do. They cruise around looking for planets which haven't made interstellar contact yet and buzz them. Oh, buzz them? Yes, they find some isolated spot with very few people around, then land right by some poor unsuspecting soul whom no one's ever going to believe, and then strut up and down in front of him wearing silly antennae on their head and making beep-beep noises. (laughs) Rather childish, really. (laughs) But the big deal of his presence is that he's got the means to get both himself and Arthur off the Earth before it's demolished, which he actually manages to do, and therein we have the, the premise that's set up for the rest of the story. Arthur's on a spaceship as a, as I say, a contemporary human, somebody who's, who's no idea that there were such things as spaceships, really, up until this point. And it sets up the story, and it sets up the humour with how the poor guy copes with everything that he comes across in that environment. Again, looking a bit at the history of the series itself, it's uh, since its inception, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is just about been through every major medium known to man. It was originally written, as I think I've said, by or commissioned by the BBC, BBC Radio 4, which is, let's say if, if Radio 1 is the, the pop music station, then Radio 4 is the serious upper-class Englishman in his castles listening to the news station. Uh, so it was commissioned by them, by the Light Entertainment Department. Originally put together as a, I was going to say six-hour, six-episode radio series, six-half-hour, so... Three hours of radio, written and broadcast in, in the front half of 1978. The story, very much as I'd outlined, first episode sets up the, the premise of Arthur, Ford rescuing him from the Earth, getting them aboard one of the ships of the people who'd come to demolish the planet, the, the Vogons, who were apparently just intergalactic bureaucrats. So it was put out in 78, and fairly much self-contained story in six episodes, which the BBC then completely threw off by commissioning a Christmas episode for the same year, which gave the author, Douglas Adams, a few problems because he had to write his way out of, of all of the stuff that he hadn't really thought about when he put the first ones together. It was first for the BBC in quite a few ways. It was a mixture of sci-fi and comedy, which they'd never done before. In fact, it was the first sci-fi they'd done since the 50s, I believe. It was the first comedy they'd ever done in stereo. Stereo was seen as something for music, I suspect, and all these sort of progressive people, not for the staid audience of BBC Radio 4. And for the first time for comedy, it wasn't recorded in front of an audience. Again, BBC received wisdom up to this point was that comedy was performed on a stage in the Paris studio in front of an audience who laughed at all the funny bits and, and therefore gave the radio audience a clue as to what was going on and what was supposed to be serious, what was supposed to be funny. In this case, all of that got thrown out of the window, um, largely because of of the way they actually wanted to to put it together. Um, Douglas Adams had this vision of, I think, an audio soundscape, pointing out things like, if you're on an alien planet, you do not get a sound effect that then stops instantly. The sound would go on. It's the atmosphere of the planet. 
this was all new to the BBC and the poor guys they'd employed to do it. Multi-track recording just didn't exist. I think apparently by the end of the first series they eventually came up with an eight-track recorder which allowed them to do all sorts of things that up until that point they'd only been dreaming of. And they pretty much made up what they were doing as they went along. BBC had this thing called a radiophonic workshop, which I guess was early workings with uh, electronic music and synthesizers and all these modern progressive things. And they were given pretty much free reign to create whatever sounds and so on that they felt was going to be needed for this series. So BBC really didn't know what they were doing and fortunately didn't interfere and left Douglas Adams and the the producer Geoffrey Perkins to get on with it. Had... I was going to say a, a British cast. I don't know that there are any outstanding names known for other things. A guy called Simon Jones, Arthur Dent, Geoffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect, Susan Sheridan, Trillian, Mark Wing Davies, Zaphod Beeblebrocks, Stephen Moore as Marvin the Paranoid Android. Hey, Marvin! I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed. God. Well, here's something to occupy you and keep your mind off things. It won't work. I have an exceptionally large mind. Marvin. All right, what do you want me to do? Go down to number two entry bay and bring the two aliens up here under surveillance. Just that? Yes. I won't enjoy it. She's not asking you to enjoy it. Just do it, will you? All right, I'll do it. Good, great. Thank you. I'm not getting you down at all, am I? No, no, Marvin. That's just fine, really. I wouldn't like to think I was getting you down. No, don't worry about that. You just act as comes naturally and everything will be fine. You're sure you don't mind? No, no, it's all just part of life. Life? Don't talk to me about life. Um, biggest, best, yeah, not biggest, but the best casting they did in that was actually a guy called Peter Jones, who, if you've ever listened to this, did the voice of the book itself. So he was the voice of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy whenever they played an excerpt. Also took on the role of the narrator for the series. And what he brought to the table was a complete and utter sense of confusion. And you could... Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but listening to him, you can certainly believe that he really doesn't have a clue what's going on around him, and sort of slightly incredulous tones. And that really set the scene for the rest of the series, uh, and what was, what was to go on. This is the story of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, perhaps the most remarkable, certainly the most successful book ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. More popular than the Celestial Home Care Omnibus, better selling than... 53 more things to do in zero gravity, and more controversial than Ulan Kalufid's trilogy of philosophical blockbusters, Where God Went Wrong, Some More of God's Greatest Mistakes, and Who Is This God Person Anyway? And in many of the more relaxed civilizations on the outer eastern rim of the galaxy, the Hitchhiker's Guide has already supplanted the great Encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom, because although it has many omissions, contains much that is apocryphal, or at least wildly inaccurate, it scores over the older, more pedestrian work in two important ways. First, it is slightly cheaper, and second, it has the words Don't Panic inscribed in large, friendly letters on the cover. Hi Mike, this is Meds from Waffle Arm Podcast and of course the forums here on Treks in Sci-Fi. 
Well done you for doing a podcast on the brilliant Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's a programme I actually plan on doing in the near future. Now Douglas Adams is a genius and such a terrible crime that we have been robbed of such talent at such a young age. Now I know you're going to be talking about all things Hitchhikers, from the plays to the books, TV and film, but I just wanted to talk about the wonderful Peter Jones. Now Peter Jones was the voice of the book in the original BBC plays, TV series and of course the records. Peter had such an amazing delivery for me, he helped the play flow so well, it was sublime. And Peter was born in Wem in Shropshire, England on the 12th of June 1920 and one of his first acting roles was in Wolverhampton at 16 which is just down the road from me. Between 1952 and 1955, Jones starred alongside the great Peter Ustinov in the BBC radio comedy In All Directions. The show featured Jones and Ustinov as themselves in a car in London perpetually searching for Copthorne Avenue. The comedy derived from the characters they met along the way, often also played by themselves. Now the show was unusual for its time as it was largely improvised and then edited by Frank Muir and Dennis Norden, who also sometimes took part. Now, two of the most popular characters were Morris and Dudley Grosner, two rather stupid East End spibs whose sketches always ended up with the phrase, run for it Dudley, or Murray as appropriate. One recording from October 1952 still survives in the BBC archives. Jones was also a regular contestant on the panel game show Just a Minute. Now I first became a fan of Jones when I saw him in the amazing film School for Scoundrels which also starred Terry Thomas and Ian Carmichael. It was in this film that he reprised his role of Dudley Grosvenor from the already mentioned All Directions. In TV, Jones took the lead in the rag trade and acted in such shows as The Goodies, Rumpole of the Bailey, Holby City, Whoops Apocalypse and The Bill. But it is for his narration of the book in The Hitchhiker's Guide that he is most remembered for. His flow and gentle delivery, especially when he talks about the babelfish. The babelfish is small, yellow, leech-like and probably the oddest thing in the universe. It feeds on brainwave energy, absorbing all unconscious frequencies and then excreting telepathically a matrix formed from the conscious frequencies and nerve signals picked up from the speech centers of the brain. The practical upshot of which is that if you stick one in your ear, you instantly understand anything said to you in any form of language. The speech you hear decodes the brainwave matrix. Now, it is such a bizarrely improbable coincidence that anything so mind-bogglingly useful could evolve purely by chance that many thinkers have chosen to see it as a final and clinching proof. <laughs> now, Peter also narrated in similar style on Last Chance to See, also by Douglas Adams. Peter was also a talented screenwriter and wrote and starred in the sitcom Mr Big. Sadly, Peter died of natural causes aged 70 in the year 2000, which is such a shame as I would love to have seen him play the role of the book again in the film version. Cheers, Mike, and thanks for all the fish. Yeah, thanks for that, Meds. And as I say, I think Jones's voice pretty much made the series exactly what it, what it is today, and certainly a lot of it is down to him, and to have had him in the film would have been excellent. So they had this series in 78, and was so successful that, in fact, the year after, they bought out a version of it on vinyl, which I don't know that it was necessarily a done thing in the BBC those days. Double album came out with, with much the same story, much the same cast. Bar one, I think it covered episodes one to four. Now, so I've got the record, I've got it on tape, I haven't got a record player anymore, but, you know, it's good. But to me, the radio series is, is really Hitchhiker's Guide in its, its purest form. You can't get away 
from the original story, the way it was put together, the way it was intended to be. And in some of the, the later efforts, there's been a lot of second-guessing, a lot of rethinking, and a lot of manipulating, which may be a better production, but probably isn't a better story. Story-wise, it's, it's quite interesting to note that, that for its time, and, and despite the fact it was a comedy, Hitchhikers isn't actually shy about tackling some of the eternal problems that sci-fi have always taken on. Now, you could argue whether they're tackling it or whether they're parodying it. I don't really care which view you take on it. But, for example, you know, we've got Arthur Dent aboard an alien spacecraft, and the fundamental thing that you always get in that sort of story is going to be the question of how on earth is he going to understand what the aliens say. Now, you take a series like Stargate, and we just gloss over all of that, and everybody speaks English after about the second episode, and that's fine. You get something like Star Trek, and you have a wonderful technological answer to that question in the Universal Translator. Douglas Adams takes a completely different route. The Babelfish is small, yellow, leech-like, and probably the oddest thing in the universe. It feeds on brainwave energy, absorbing all unconscious frequencies and then excreting telepathically a matrix formed from the conscious frequencies and nerve signals picked up from the speech centres of the brain. The practical upshot of which is that if you stick one in your ear, you can instantly understand anything said to you in any form of language. The speech you hear decodes the brainwave matrix. Now, it is such a bizarrely improbable coincidence that anything so mind-bogglingly useful could evolve purely by chance that some thinkers have chosen to see it as a final clinching proof of the non-existence of God. The argument goes something like this. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God, for proof denies faith, and without faith I am nothing. But, said man, the Babelfish is a dead giveaway, isn't it? It proves you exist, and so therefore you don't. QED. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic. Oh, that was easy, says man, and for an encore he proves that black is white and gets killed on the next zebra crossing. Most leading theologians claim that this argument is a load of dingo's kidneys, but that didn't stop Ulan Kalufid making a small fortune when he used it as the central theme of his best-selling book, Well, That About Wraps It Up For God. Meanwhile, the poor Babelfish, by effectively removing all barriers to communication between different cultures and races, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. I, the Babelfish is one of those glorious ideas of the series. Utterly ridiculous, but equally utterly fantastic. I'm not so sure on the bit where they, they use it as an ultimate proof of the non-existence of God, but sticking the argument in the series uh, and using it as a justification for the existence of the Babelfish, given just how unlikely it is that something would have evolved, what it really does is diverts the attention of the listener from the sheer unbelievability of what's just been introduced. You're so busy working your way through the explanation and the justification and all the rest of it that's going on that by the end of it you've completely forgotten that the Babelfish is probably utterly impossible. Uh, there's no way it would exist and what a silly idea it is. Pure distraction, pure distractive writing and utterly, utterly brilliant authorship in my view. One of the other things they uh, confront is they, they take on the sort of Star Trek-like belief that Aliens are not always, but sort of happy, jolly, friendly, the whole sort of enlightened federation thing. And <laughs> portrays them as largely self-interested or vindictive or, or just plain strange. One of the things that we said is that the ship sent to demolish the Earth was crewed by a species called the Vogons. And with this Star Trek, we'd have made first contact, we'd have had lunch, we'd have done all sorts of different things. 
In the Hitchhiker's world, well... So, Earthlings, I present you with a simple choice. Think carefully for you hold your very lives in your hands. Now choose. Either die in the vacuum of space or... Tell me how good you thought my poem was. I liked it. Oh, oh, yes, I thought that some of the metaphysical imagery was particularly effective. Yes? Oh. And, um, interesting rhythmic devices, too, which seemed to counterpoint the... Uh... Counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor of the, um... Humanity of the, uh... Vagonity. What? Vagonity. Oh, oh, Vagonity, sorry. Of the poet's compassionate soul, which contrived through the medium of the verse structure to sublimate this, transcend that, and come to terms with the fundamental dichotomies of the other, and one is left with a profound and vivid insight into... Uh, into whatever it was the, the poem, poem was, was about. about. Ah. Well done, Arthur. That was very good. So what you're saying is that I write poetry because underneath my mean, callous, heartless exterior, I really just want to be loved. Is that right? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, don't we all, deep down, you know. <laughs> no, well, you're completely wrong. I just write poetry to throw my mean, callous, heartless exterior into sharp relief. I'm going to show you off the ship anyway. Good! Take the prisoners number three airlock and throw them out. You can't throw us off into deep space. We're trying to write a book. I don't want to die now. I've still got a headache. I don't want to go to heaven with a headache. I'll be all cross and wouldn't enjoy it. It's worth noting the phrase used by the Vogon Guard there, resistance is useless. Trek fans out there, remind you of anything else? Douglas Adams got there first. So within an hour of being rescued from the glowing remains of his planet, Arthur ends up floating in space. Hasn't got a chance of being rescued, if you look at it logically. But again, that's the normal theory. Hitchhikers has to be unique here, and once again, in order to justify the impossibility of Arthur and Ford being picked up by a spaceship... I, I mean, I can only imagine the brain power that must have gone into this stuff, but Adams comes up with his invention of the infinite improbability drive. The infinite improbability drive is a wonderful new method of crossing interstellar distances in a few seconds without all that tedious mucking about in hyperspace. The principle of generating small amounts of finite improbability by simply hooking the logic circuits of a Bambolwini 57 submeson brain to an atomic vector plotter suspended in a strong Brownian motion producer, say a nice hot cup of tea, were of course well understood, and such generators were often used to break the ice at parties by making all the molecules in the hostess's undergarments simultaneously leap one foot to the left, in accordance with the theory of indeterminacy. Many respectable physicists said that they weren't going to stand for that sort of thing, partly because it was a debasement of science, but mostly because they didn't get invited to those sort of parties. Another thing they couldn't stand was the perpetual failure they encountered in trying to construct a machine which could generate the infinite improbability field needed to flip a spaceship between the furthest stars, and in the end, they grumpily announced that such a machine was virtually impossible. Then, one day, a student who had been left to sweep up the lab after a particularly unsuccessful party found himself reasoning this way. If such a machine is a virtual impossibility, then it must logically be a finite improbability. So all I have to do in order to make one is to work out exactly how improbable it is, then feed that figure into the finite improbability generator, give it a fresh cup of really hot, tea and then turn it on. 
He did this and was rather startled to discover that he'd managed to create the long-sought-after infinite improbability generator out of thin air. It startled him even more when just after he was awarded the Galactic Institute's prize for extreme cleverness, he got lynched by a rampaging mob of respectable physicists who had finally realised that the one thing they really couldn't stand was a smart-ass. To my mind, all Hitchhikers was funny, and it was funny. Uh, a lot of this... A lot of this strange science is funny. But it was intelligent as well, and it managed to entertain, but at the same time, it was very good at being self-consistent in its pseudo-scientific explanations for all sorts of things. It hung together brilliantly as a story. Our ancestors were taken into slavery and seated amongst the stars. But we bring hope. We will throw down their false gods and set them free. We will be hosts to a scavenger race no longer. We search the stars for races to help us as allies. The Stargate takes us there. Join our astro team as we attempt to stop the ghoul. We are the fifth race. A Stargate SG-1 podcast. Find us online at thefifthracepodcast.com. Rather interesting uh, promo there for Fifth Race, Stargate podcast. One of the ones I listen to, I think one of the few I listen to, that isn't actually manufactured by people associated with Trex and Sci-Fi. Interesting to note that they also play Rico's promo every so often, so I thought it would be quite nice to play theirs in return. And what they're doing is working their way through Stargate SG-1 in sequence from the first episode, providing sort of post-viewing analysis and stuff on all of the episodes. I think their plan is to work through SG-1, then into Atlantis and take on Universe when it comes up. Certainly I listen to it weekly. It's quite interesting to hear their take on uh, a lot of the episodes of that story. So give it a go if you've got an interest in Stargate. In 1979, the first of the paperback books came out not published by the BBC, apparently BBC Worldwide or whoever it was handled book publishing in those days, had had a crack at it and turned it down. So it was out, not outsourced, but it, it went out to pan. Apparently the BBC publications guys got quite cross about it later on and asked why they never have a go at it. So short memory in industry lives on, even back then. The thing with the book is it only seems to cover about the first five episodes of the series and it, it ends rather abruptly. In fact, what I think is an original copy that I've got, even has a number of blank pages in the back, as if just to emphasise the point. And this highlighted one of the problems that everybody was to have with, with this series, which is Douglas Adams' apparent inability to work to a deadline. Apparently the way this seems to work is that, that deadlines were seen as a sign that he really, really ought to get around to writing something. It was true with the book. I believe it was true to a certain degree with the uh, radio series. And it was certainly true with the second radio series, which we'll come on to later on. But back to this first book, it's reported to have, have ended as abruptly as it did, literally, because the publishers rang him up and said, how far have you got? Right, we'll have that. And sent a courier around to nick it from under his pen before he could write any further. Many people say that the book is the purest form of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but for me, I have to say, I, I disagree with that assessment. I know you've only got the words, and in most cases I'm normally one of the first to crow over the book before the movie, for instance, in, in so many areas, and, and say that that is normally my favourite medium. But in this case, I still have to stick, as I've already said, with, with the radio series. 
something with the original sound effects, the original cast, I don't know. One of the problems, I think, with it is that Adams was an inveterate rewriter, and he'd always be second-guessing what he'd done before, going back over old ground, <coughs> changing things, tweaking things, just continually fiddling. And some of the originality of the radio series, I think, was lost through that process, it was sort of ebbed away slowly through the record, through the book, and then later through the TV series. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're all good in their own right, but uh, don't measure up quite to the original. Obviously, even after the book, the BBC felt the same way, because as that was published, I think it was at about the same time that they were putting down the requirement for a second six-episode radio series. Well, when I say six-episode, they'd done the Christmas episode in 78, so the reality was going to be a five-episode series, certainly when they published it later on. second series included the uh, the previous Christmas one, so it came out as a, as a packet of six. What they did this time is they took five episodes, and whereas they'd done them weekly originally, these ones to go out back-to-back in a week. 1980, I think, was the year they were going out. They started writing these in May of 79. And given Douglas Adams' attitude to deadlines, what they ended up doing was writing the last one during the week of January 1980 when they were being broadcast. There are great stories of people hacking tape, because in those days reel-to-reel tape recorder was the medium used for radio recording. And so there's a story where they uh, got the tape wrapped around the heads and sort of three people hacking at it with razor blades, trying to get it off the machine and down the road to the broadcast studio half an hour before it was due to go out or something. It's an amazing sort of Heath Robinson trying to get the thing together at the very, very last minute. The second series, again, was brilliant. I mean, I possibly don't rate it as high as the first series, but I have a sneaking suspicion that that's because it took us to a lot of new pr- new places, and these were new places that then weren't revisited later in, in the other in the other media. So whereas the, the first series I've probably got an over-familiarity with because I've heard the radio series, listened to the records, read the books, seen the film, seen the TV, dirty, dirty, dirty. The second series, it was uniqueness of radio because, again, as I said, he rehashed it when he went to the next medium and, and never reused those scenes. Okay, where's Zani Whoop? Get me Zani Whoop. Excuse me, sir. Zani Whoop, get him, right? Get him now. Well, sir, if you could be a little cool about it. Look, I... I'm up to here with cool, okay? I am so amazingly cool. You could keep a side of meat in me for a month. I am so hip, I have difficulty seeing over my pelvis. Now, will you move before I blow it? Well, if you'd let me explain, sir. I'm afraid that isn't possible right now, as Mr. Zani Whoop is on an intergalactic cruise. When's he going to be back? Back, sir. Well, he's in his office. This cat's on an intergalactic cruise in his office? Yes, sir. Listen, Three Eyes, don't you try to outweird me. I get Stranger Things and you free with my breakfast cereal. Well, just who do you think you are, honey? Zaphod Bebobrox or something? Yeah, count the head. So, uprate my opinion, really. The second series is good, and it may even be better than the first, just because it carries a whole load of themes and elements that were simply never looked at again. Second book followed the second radio series, and that supposedly was covering the back-end two episodes of the first series. Probably would be claimed these were the bits that he hadn't written before when the book was dragged from under his pen. However, at the time of writing the first radio series, Adams, I think, had also been script editor on Doctor Who, and towards the back end, the workload had got really quite heavy. So he'd collaborated with a guy named John Lloyd, who's done a lot of production stuff for the BBC and, I believe, ITV, certainly television and radio. And some of the better elements, in my view anyway, that came out of that collaboration came from the pen of John Lloyd. So when the book came around, Douglas Adams took the decision not to reuse those bits and pieces, and so rehashed the story of the Hagenenon, which was a whole sequence about 
how our characters found themselves on the flagship of a vast battle fleet was replaced by a sequence about the rock band disaster area, at which point our people were finding themselves on a stunt ship for a rock concert. Completely different story, and one that frankly wasn't as good. Deadlines, again, played a significant part in the process. Second vinyl album was released about this time too, covering the same sort of time period, last two episodes. But again, it underwent the same story changes as the book had done, removing the uh, material that Adams didn't claim ownership of from the radio series. And again, tweaking other bits and pieces. Apparently, one of the problems with this record is it never went through its final mix-down before being produced, because due to some misunderstanding somewhere. So I haven't listened to it for a while. It was only a single album, but it was was quite a flabby telling of the story from what I hear. Hi, this is Rick Moyer. Moyer777 on the forums. I love Trex and Sci-Fi. Rico, you rock. And you know you inspired me to do my own podcast. And so I have. Every week I've started putting out a podcast called Taking With You. And it's all about my life and the world around me. You might find it interesting. I guarantee you, you'll smile by the end of the podcast. And in a world that is kind of depressing lately... I think it's great to be encouraged every week. So would you try it out? Come take a listen. It's at www.takehimwithyou.com. It's called Take Him With You, the weekly podcast that's spiritual, not religious. In 1981, BBC Television got involved for the first time. Somebody having decided to take on the impossible task of, of turning what could be described as an audio spectacular into something visual. Now, it's probably a difficult task at best if you're trying to adapt something from radio to television. But when you take the nature of this story into account, then I think it would have been very daunting indeed. For a start, you've got something that's funny, and a lot of the humour, by the very nature of it being a radio series, is audio in nature. And also you've got a lot of descriptive stuff. And, you know, radio, you can describe anything you like. You don't need to reproduce it visually. You're reliant on people's imaginations, which are normally quite good. The moment that becomes requirement on television to produce images of all of this, then it's got to be a pretty tall order. And it obviously was. You look, they, they did a pilot episode, and you look at the way that went together. For the time, as I say, beginning of the 80s, the first episode took a, a budget of £120,000, which was apparently four times, certainly at that point, the, the budget for a Doctor Who episode. Now, I'll... Doctor Who wasn't massively overfunded in those days, and they themselves were doing something quite impossible in producing quite a good sci-fi TV series on the cheap by then, I think. But a ratio of four to one just on a first go shows some of the intricacies that really were involved in putting this in for television. And apparently this backfired quite big time later on as, as the budgets got tighter and tighter and, and the final episodes really being run on a, a shoestring. Now, if anybody's seen this on television, the obvious feature that stands out is the so-called computer graphics. When you have the sections of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, on the radio that was fine, it was Peter Jones's voice talking, we've, we've heard a few excerpts of that in this show, and the rest of it's down to imagination. It doesn't work on television. Somebody talking over a blank screen, you've got to question why you're looking at the TV not listening to it on the radio. So somebody's bright idea was that they would present the pages of the book on the screen. Now Hitchhiker's Guide at this point, was becoming visualised as a computerised book. Now, you look at something like an iPhone or, or, in fact, many of the phones, PDAs of today, that sort of thing is commonplace. It's got a screen, it's got a speaker, and it talks. Back in the 80s, these these things were unheard of. Star Trek communicator writ large, I guess. I think the closest thing I can think of that it looks like is, is one of the early 
Scion organisers, but with a much bigger screen there. So as they were doing the commentary from the book, they had the book graphics going on, and these graphics won a BAFTA. I think TV series won three BAFTAs, and I didn't look at what the other two were for. But the joke with all of this was that there wasn't a computer involved anywhere, and this was traditional animation, coloured cells, photography, tricks, all, all very, very clever stuff. If you get the opportunity to see it, then looking at it for the graphics alone is, is worth the effort. Now, there were other problems going into this. Going into the radio series, I think Jeffrey Perkins, the producer, and Douglas Adams, the author, had worked up quite a relationship between the two of them knew how to work together and get things done. Television at the BBC is done in a different way, and it's done by different people. And if, certainly if you believe the stories that were put about by Douglas Adams, and part of the problems with the TV series was that he'd had a TV producer, and it was a man who worked to his budget, to his hours, and was of the mentality of in, interested in getting the job done. Now, that's Douglas Adams' view, and... If you're trying to make a television programme and uh, I guess are a little frustrated by the way it's going, you find somebody to talk about. I've no idea what the producer's view is, so I'm where I'm putting something one-sided across here. Uh, the reality is probably lost in the mists of time by now. But there were problems, and I, I think Adam certainly was disappointed by the way it came out. Again, I have seen it. I've got it on VHS. Never put it on DVD. I don't know if it's out or not. And it's good enough. And that's really as far as I'm able to go with it. Yours, you suffer from trying to do sci-fi things on small BBC budget. We have the usual, I think it was a clay pit in this case, but clay pits and quarries and, and things that we were so familiar with of Doctor Who as, as cheap alien sets. Now, they're not quite so important because a lot of this stuff is certainly initially on, on a ship. And usually the cast from the radio series pretty much transferred across to the television show. So you had Peter Jones doing the voice of the book, Simon Jones as Arthur Dent. I forgot his name for a moment there. Mark Green Davies there for Beeble Rocks. But there were a few changes. You had somebody called David Dixon came in as Ford Prefect because while Geoffrey McGiven, I believe, had the voice, it was said that he didn't have the look and there was something about Dixon that everybody even now says does look strangely alien and when you're doing something in a visual medium then you need the main characters to have the visual look of what you're doing. Simon Jones was, was brilliant as Arthur, both vocally on the radio and on the television, always looking slightly bewildered at what was going on around him, wandering round in his pyjamas and his dressing gown on all these various outlandish sets. The dressing gown, by the way, was an invention of the TV series, which I don't think it had ever been talked about in the book or on the radio what he was wearing, but the fact that the story had opened with him getting out of bed to find bulldozers knocking his house down, they just played that through on TV and kept him in his, his dressing gown. Now, I said something about a couple of problems that the television was going to have was handling some of the radio visuals. So, for instance, say for Beeble Rocks is a character with two heads. There aren't that many two-headed actors around in the UK, and I don't believe there are that many in the rest of the world. So what this led to was a hugely expensive, certainly for the BBC anyway, animatronic head. Apparently it cost about £3,000, which, OK, not vast, certainly not now, but back in 1981, and as I say, on the budget of the show, that was big bucks. It was expensive, it didn't look very real to me, and most of the time it didn't actually work. Apparently they got some good performances out of it in rehearsal, but generally when the cameras were turned on, the thing conked out, and that was it. 
As I say, to my mind, it was a good effort, but that's as, as far as I'm able to go with it. There were just too many compromises involved in what they were trying to do. As I said, it was challenging, trying to do in a visual medium, what up to then had only been done on radio and in print. Story-wise, it's rehashed a lot of the stuff that had gone into the books and gone into the records, it, and at this point you began to be aware that, that some of this material that, that Adam said had helped with on the radio was now dead forevermore and would never be seen again. At the same time as the BBC was putting this together, in the States the radio series was just starting to go out on NBR. And I think they said they'd waited until they'd put their new stereo service in place before they broadcast this, because some of the effects and so on, I guess, do make good use of, of the stereo environment. At the same time, apparently, ABC was starting on their take of a TV series. And I think the back end of that year, Adam spent in the States trying to work out a script for that. By all accounts, we should thank heavens that it was never produced, because I think some of the way they were trying to go with it really would have... Certainly to the, the British audience would have wrecked it, and I think probably the US audience is, is better off with the, the UK take on it than pr- the, perhaps their own, I'm afraid. And from then on, for the, for the next few years, the project's just rolled. 1982 is the publication date of life, the universe and everything. Arguably the first original book to have hit the shelves. This wasn't a dramati- This wasn't a dramatisation. This wasn't a rewrite of any of the dramatisations. This was a completely new story, albeit one that was allegedly reused from an aborted Doctor Who story of Adams, Doctor Who and the Cricket Men. Interesting. That's the second spaceship we've seen at Lord's today. And to think I woke up in a prehistoric cave this morning. It's very impressive, hanging up there. Much sleeker than slanty Bartfasts, isn't it? The hatch is opening. One, two, three... Is that a cricket team arriving from some other galaxy? Or another publicity stunt for Australian margarine? Ten, eleven, all in white, carrying bats and balls... And flying down with cricket pads. No, rocket pads on their shins. They're dressed like cricketers, but they're robots. What was that? Hey! This book tended to have more of a story arc, perhaps, than either of the other two had, certainly than either of the radio series had. was a specific adventure, if you like, with our characters off to solve a problem and save the galaxy, and it would have fitted very well into the Doctor Who environment of the time. I was a little uncertain of it when it came out, but, but looking back on it now, it certainly plays better for me than when I originally read it. I've developed a, a, a certain fondness for it. Two years later, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish came out, the fourth book in the trilogy. And to my mind, I'm afraid the the worst one of the lot, not least because of the way some of it went together. As far as Arthur Dent went, it had the same sense of story. It had a number of cool features, but it, it jumped around a little too much for me. And in one place, at least actually stepped out of the storytelling and became Douglas Adams having a little rant at his, his readers rather than carrying on with the story. I mean, once you reach a point where the author is writing, if you don't like this, go across to the next chapter, which is a good bit and has Marvin in it, then you've completely cut across what the story you're trying to tell. You've taken everybody out of it. Okay, it was, it was over halfway through, it was a few chapters from the end, but I thought that was a little bit, little bit of a crass mistake and probably not one the publisher should have let him get away with. I can only assume it was a reflection on his frustrations, but as I say, I'm surprised it made the final book. 1984 also saw the PC Adventure game come out, which I have completed. I've still got it on five and a quarter inch discs somewhere, but I haven't got anything I can plug five and a quarter inch discs into, so it's not a heck of a lot of use. 
Again, that was based on Hitchhikers and took many of the initial elements, but once you're into the gameplay, branched off in all sorts of other directions, and really, I think, was, was Adams having fun with all the different things he could have done. Once you're not telling a linear story, but you've got these opportunities for branches and breaks, it really could be quite entertaining. 1985, they published the radio scripts, which, oddly enough, I've got on my bookshelf. And then in 1988, finally saw both of the series released on CD. Now, I bought these CDs, which was fine, six CDs for, I can't remember what what price, and it's from these that the clips that we've been listening to today have been taken. Problem was, at the time, I didn't have a CD player, so having got Hitchhiker's Guide on CD, I then needed to save up for a CD player, which I bought a a month or so later, I think, and... uh, with some headphones, then had to get an amplifier and some speakers later on. The whole thing was driven by the Hitchhiker's Guide. Hello, you are about to ask me a question. Yes. I know what it is. We can do it together. Ready? Was I found... In a handbag? In the the left left luggage luggage office at at Fenchurch Street Street Station? Station? And the answer is no. Oh, fine. I was conceived there. In the left luggage office? Don't be daft. What would my parents be doing in the left luggage office? Well, I don't know. It was in the ticket queue. The final of the books, Mostly Harmless, was released in 1992, which was was better than the last one. Uh, Wasn't my favourite, but again, had a bit of a story to it. Uh, Arthur having a daughter, showing up, and and the fallout from that. Whether there was going to be another book isn't really known, because three years after that, Douglas Adams died of a heart attack. I believe he was in the gym, which... Says a lot about those who need to exercise. I mean, Brian on the forum, perhaps you want to be aware of this. I mean, perhaps my sedentary lifestyle isn't so bad as it was after all. Greetings, guildies. I'm Kenny. And I'm Jenny. After listening to this great podcast, why don't you turn into our podcast? Knights of the Guild. The official fan podcast for the web series The Guild. Each month, we'll bring you the latest news about the Guild cast, including what projects they're working on and what conventions they'll be attending. Also, we'll be updating you on the current season. We'll talk about some behind-the-scenes fun of Season 2, as well as having cast, crew, and fan interviews. So head over to iTunes and subscribe to Knights of the Guild. Or go to our website for a direct download at knightsoftheguild.podbean.com. Zaboo! Apart from some DC comics between 1993 and 1996, which I know nothing about, I just picked this up off Wikipedia, so believe it all, or don't as you choose. That was basically it for ten years, until an idea that had come up earlier was resurrected, which was to record, produce, and broadcast BBC radio series of the final three books. Now, obviously, given what we've already said about the, the rewrites and story changes that, that Adams put in between the original radio series and the books, this was going to give us some obvious continuity problems. Not least because, as I've already said, the entire second radio series never made it into literary form in any case. Apparently this didn't seem to present too much of a challenge to the guys who decided to take this on, and neither had the fact that some of the actors playing key roles in the series had actually already died. Clearly they thought they could work around of all of this, and by and large they appeared to have been correct. 2004, certainly was the broadcast date at least, of the tertiary phase, which corresponded to the book, the life, the universe and everything. And as with the original series, once again, BBC radio series Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy went back to being the first in some areas, or at least one of the first. In this case, it was radio broadcast in Dolby Surround, which, I say it's one of the first, I don't think it had never been done before, but certainly they're on the, the cutting edge of the technology there. 
The way they handled the story differences between the book and the original radio series was by simply describing most of the entirety of the second series as one of Zayford's psychotic episodes, much in line with the way Adams himself did, simply make a sore statement, write the whole thing off and carry on, never to go back and look at it again. There's no convoluted explanation that people will pick holes in. Say three words, that's it, it's gone. Dead Actors was a little bit more of a problem, but again, something they worked around relatively easily, I feel. One of them, sadly, was Peter Jones, the voice of the book in so many incarnations of this series. His friend William Franklin took on the role, and they had a a neat little scene at the beginning of the tertiary phase, blurring the two voices together, obviously the the two actors reading the same part and and chopping and changing and cutting between the two, updating the vocal subprocessor or something, I, I think it was called. This is the story of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Perhaps the most remarkable, certainly the most successful book ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. Now in its 7 to the power of 16th edition, it has been continuously revised and upgraded, including being fitted with a highly experimental jog-jog-jog-proof, splash-resistant heat shield. And a sophisticated new voice circuit. Not always with complete success. Interestingly, this time around, they pulled in some bigger names. Again, I said in the second series on the radio, they pulled in some names, some some more well-known actors. By the third series, we're starting to pull in people that that lots of people will have heard of. We've had Douglas Adams himself in the role of Agrajag. We had Joanna Lumley and a couple of of people who probably most recently are are known for their roles in the Harry Potter series of films. So Slotty Bartfast, this time around, was played by Richard Griffiths, who most people will probably know as Dursley Senior. And similarly... They had Leslie Phillips in, who's obviously a very well-known actor, but from for more years ago, perhaps now. But again, Harry Potter used him as the voice of the sorting hat, I think it was. Won't you both come out? I promise that you're perfectly safe. By which people usually mean when not. Come on, Arthur. But it's empty space. Have faith. I do. I also have fear and a propensity to bruising. I have nothing to offer you by way of hospitality but tricks of the light. It is possible to be comfortable with tricks of the light, though, if that is all you have. Good grief. It's a sofa. The sofa. The one that Ford and I escaped from prehistoric Earth on. Why does the universe keep doing these insanely bewildering things to me? Once you get into the fourth series, which was known as the, the Quandary Phase, corresponding to the book So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, then we had Jane Horrocks, June Whitfield, Stephen Fry even played a, a part, I think, of um, Arthur Dent's boss. Apparently he worked at the... Arthur Dent was supposed to have worked at the BBC, so Stephen Fry was this rather mad BBC producer. I don't know if he was based on anyone in involved in the original series, but it was very much as as Adams had written him, so I I guess there was some personal involvement there. Yep. Murray. Arthur Dent? Yes. Arthur, my old soup spoon, my old silver tureen, how particularly stunning to hear from you. Someone told me you'd gone off into space or something. What? Oh, just a rumour, my old elephant tusk, my little green baize card table. Uh, Got it from someone who picked up a hitchhiker in Somerset. Probably means nothing at all, but I may need a quote from you. Oh, well then, I deny it. Oh, that's perfect, thank you. Fits like a what's-it in one of those other things with the other stories of the week, that denial. The other surprise one was Christian Slater, who I guess is not so much of a surprise. He turned up in the sixth Star Trek film, did he not, as an uncredited part? Well, he's certainly credited here, playing the part of of Wonko the Sane. Hello. 
Hello. I am John Watson, but you can call me Wonko the Sane. Arthur Dent. <laughs> you have a very interesting house. It's inside out. It gives me pleasure. Here. Thank you. We've come to ask you about the dolphins. Ah, yes. Them. Um, your wife mentioned toothpicks. Yes. That's to do with the day I finally realized that the world had gone totally crazy. So I built the asylum to put it in. Poor thing, hoping it would get better. And then 2005 broadcast the so-called quintessential phase, the, the final book. And that pulled in Jonathan Price, who'd actually been in the original series, but also other probably more well-known UK voices, perhaps, rather than international ones, or even international ones. So these three radio series did for the, the final stories what the original had done from day one. And in my view, returned Hitchhiker's Guide to the Place Where It Belonged. So you were doing what yesterday? I was playing Oblivion for 12 hours straight. That is the most awesome thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm still working on it. <laughs> I'm the obsessive compulsive type that likes to explore every cave, every mm-hmm. nook and cranny of every mountain, every city, That's why they every put it back there. alley. Yes, I you know. You know what I like? What? Civilization and a bottle of wine. <laughs> Whole day. That, that to me would be heaven. Because, as I've said before, I can't play Civilization every day, but I could play it for a whole day. If you had a bottle of wine. If I had a bottle of wine. <laughs> Otherwise, would just you play keep, it? <laughs> not like to get drunk, but just to play, have a nice little, you know. It's like a good book. Just like, Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what it is <laughs> for me. You know? And always think that I might play aggressively and then I never do. <laughs> because like, the wine mellows you out. <laughs> because the wine mellows me out. It's the most, it's awesome. It's just a really great way to spend a day. <laughs> I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And when you're not listening to this glorious podcast, we would love to have you listen to ours, the Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. And surely no study of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy would be complete without a mention of the 2005 film. Now, I believe the film rights had been auctioned off a long time before the film actually came out. I think there were one, possibly two, aborted attempts to try and get a film going. And I think even some of the possibly the DVD rights for the BBC television series were tied up with the film, which gave the, the BBC some problems when it came time to uprate the distribution. Now, as I say, it took a while in production, and indeed, because it came out in 2005, that was obviously four years after Douglas Adams had actually died. Having said all that, he was involved in the early work on this film, so a lot of the scripting stuff, I believe, is his. Identifying which bits are and which bits aren't, I guess, is something we're not going to be able to do. And you can tell it's his to a degree, because story-wise, it's actually completely different again, and, and somewhere in there you can see that the 30 years or whatever it was that had passed since he last attacked the story uh, at the beginning of the story if you think of it like that obviously the the first two books came out 79 80 that sort of time period and 2005 is a heck of a long time after that had some common roots but the, the film itself had a lot of different elements and i have to say some of them worked and some of them didn't work so well now again whether that's me my snobbery for the bbc radio series because that's the story i know and have seen in all its its different incarnations 
whether it really is a failing in the film. In one sense, I, I wouldn't like to say. I know I'm not the only one that thinks of it in this way. I, I have seen the film. I did go and see it at the cinema. I did actually own it on DVD for a while. If I ever find out who I lent it to and didn't return it to me, then I'm going to be a bit miffed with them because while I'm not the greatest fan of it, I'm a bit of a completist and I would really quite like to have that back. If you're listening, get in touch. Amnesty is available. I actually also managed to pull in a couple of recognisable elements from the television series, such as the original Marvin costume. There's a scene in the film where the cast, or the crew, I suppose, of the ship are queuing on the planet Vogsphere to submit a form about something or another, I can't remember what, and as the camera pulls back across the rest of the queue, there, somewhere in the middle, jiggling from foot to foot, as he was prone to, is the original BBC Marvin. Now, I don't know whether it's the original BBC costume for Marvin. If it's not, it's a jolly good uh, imitation. Some of the problems I had with the film, I have to say, are related to the casting. The gritted teeth here because of the target audience of the podcast here. The American characters really didn't work for me, I'm afraid. And they, to my mind at least, let the thing down a little bit. Once you get on to Martin Freeman as Arthur Dent and the guy I'm now going to embarrass myself, whose name I can't remember that I really shouldn't know, who played Slotty Bartfast, then I think they did a fine job. They not because they were English, well, maybe it was because they were English, and that matches my ex- matched my expectation at the time, I don't know. They did very, very well. Alan Rickman, as the voice of Marvin, was absolutely marvellous. Um, performance on par with Stephen Moore, who I was holding up as, as the, the top of anything before that. Uh, then again, I like Alan Rickman, to, to my mind. He's, he's a great actor, and I've got a lot of time for him in any role that he does. But his sarcastic tones worked perfectly in the depressed robotic role. And another one that, that has to be mentioned is Stephen Fry's The Book. I said he had a role in the 2004, I think it was, Quandary Phase on the radio as, as Arthur's producer. Obviously the role of the book is a much bigger one, much bigger shoes to fill. And I think production-wise the film did exactly the right thing in getting a quintessentially English voice in that role. Anybody else, any other accent, probably would would really have killed it off. Oh, Stephen Fry, excellent. As I say, I saw the film at the cinema. I owned it briefly, and I haven't seen it since I lent it to someone, which, as I say, it's a shame, but I'm not rushing out to buy another one, I have to say, and I haven't heard anything about a, a follow-up film, so not sure how well it really did in the, the, the ratings and in general fan popularity. <laughs> So what's the impact of this series of of books and and radio plays and television programmes been? Well, certainly in the UK at least, it's had quite an impact on the sheer number of pop culture references that come out of it. I think most people understand the concept of 42 being the answer to life, the universe and everything. There is a theory which states that if ever anyone discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it is here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarrely inexplicable. There is another theory which states that this has already happened. We have the whole concept of towels, indeed my not my signature, but one of my sidebar pieces in the forum is the the famous question of, do you know where your towel is? He's a guy who really knows where his towel is. Knows what? Where his towel is. Why should you want to know where his towel is? Everybody should know where his towel is. I think your head's come undone. 
The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say on the subject of towels. A towel, it says, is about the most massively useful thing any interstellar hitchhiker can carry. For one thing, it has great practical value. You can wrap it around you for warmth on the cold moons of Jaglan Beta, sunbathe on it on the marble beaches of Santraginus V, huddle beneath it for protection from the Acturan Meganats as you sleep beneath the stars of Kakrafoon, use it to sail a mini-raft down the slow, heavy river Moth, wet it for use in hand-to-hand combat, wrap it round your head to avoid the gaze of the ravenous bug-bladder beast of Trowl which is such a mind-bogglingly stupid animal, it assumes that if you can't see it, it can't see you. And even dry yourself off with it if it still seems clean enough. And yes, they did release a range of tales. I believe it was Marks and Spencer's at one point a few years ago. And yes, I have one of those as well. Though I have to say, more recent years, it has actually seen more use as a towel than it has as any sort of prop. But bear in mind, I got these things years ago, and as a, a teenager, I wasn't really fussed on the value of things. It was just nice to have. So, yes, sadly, I have used it for drying myself after a shower. And again, Marvin, the paranoid android, is another one of those things that is probably more widely known than the stories themselves. I'm not widely known to the degree. I think that's partly the problem, responsibility, rather, of, of Stephen Moore, who played the part in most of the incarnations. In this country, at least, there were two singles released by Marvin, I probably could look up their titles. I haven't heard them. I don't own them. These are probably the, the two collectible items to do with this that I've got no interest in at all. But I've heard them on the radio back when, when they were out and one of the slightly more surprising and odd spin-offs of the series, if you ask me. Moving aside from cultural references for the moment, the other thing that, that Stephen Moore did that, again, I've also got was a series of audiobooks, effectively, books on tape, readings of... The first three books, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Restaurant at the End of the Universe, Life of the Universe and Everything, or at least those are the, the ones I believe that I actually have, whether he ever did the later two, I don't know, certainly I, I haven't seen them, but then I haven't particularly actively looked for them. These were double cassettes, readings of the book, I mean very much what they suggest, I don't know how abridged they were, I never went back to the original text with them, but I used to enjoy listening to them. One of the things I forgot to mention earlier on when we were talking about the uh, TV show is a a couple of other names of guys that were in there and when they got to the scenes about the restaurant at the end of the... First of these was playing a bodyguard, bodyguard for Mr. Hot Black Desiato, the guy who... Vader in the Star Wars film and the second one would be completely unrecognisable from the outside because he was wearing a rubber cow suit playing the dish of the day the the food that was wheeled in front of our crew for be in this role part of the reason he he did it was or part of the reason he knew about it I should say was that he was married to Sandra Dickinson, who was playing the role of Trillian in the television series. The uh, word went around that he was quite interested in being in it and was quite happy to be the, the dish of the day, at which point the BBC were in an uproar saying, it's, it's a cow suit, you can't put Peter Davison in a cow suit. But needless to say, they got over all of that and they did it and he was in the role. 
And that, I think, just about wraps it up, certainly looking at the, the timeline of, of The Hitchhiker's Guide. There's plenty more to say, there's plenty of other things we could have touched on, and certainly when I started this project, I was intending to talk an awful lot more about the plot, at least of the initial radio series, if not of the whole thing. But really there's too much material to go into that sort of detail on, I guess, what with 13 hours of radio, five books, probably three hours of television and a major film. Not to mention the fact that there have been three attempts at a stage play back in the 70s when Hitchhikers was popular. Don't know an awful lot about those. I've read some information on some of them. Certainly one of them was quite a strange set-up with various stages around a big room and an enormous hovering stand. It was some sort of hovercraft thing as far as I've read, that sat a few bits of a, an inch off the ground, pushed around by stagehands, I presume, to point the audience at the right place at the right time for the action going on on the stages. don't think it was ever a very big production. I don't think they ever managed to get that big an audience into the stand. I believe one of the other two attempts was trying to take that idea and enlarge upon it and, and do the same sort of thing, but in a, in a much bigger arena with a much bigger stand, but I'm not sure that uh, that ever got off the ground. As I say, there's really just too much to cover in, in one podcast. I guess we could go back plot-wise, we could cover that in a, in a suite of casts, but I suspect for some of those I'd do nothing more than play the radio series at you without saying too much over it myself. Just one correction, something we were talking about earlier on when I was saying Stephen Fry played a character role in the third radio series, suggesting there that he took on the role of Arthur Dent's producer, whereas in fact... He was a journalist whom Arthur had known from one of the uh, papers with the small pages and the big print. And Arthur was some, after some sort of information, so the Murray character w- was someone he was using for that. Before we go, this podcast wouldn't be complete without at least a, a brief look at some of the music used in The Hitchhiker's Guide. Now, I'm not Vartok, I don't have his extensive background knowledge on a lot of this stuff. But suffice it to say, there was, certainly in the initial radio series... A fair amount of, of copyrighted music used. The title sequence, which I played a version of at the beginning of, of this podcast from the uh, tertiary phase, was a track called Journey of the Sorcerer by the Eagles, and I believe for at least the initial radio broadcast, they simply used the original track off the album. Once it came to the vinyl release, however, this, this seemed to give them a few more problems. Now, I've seen from the DVDs that there's a certain amount of music in there by what I recognise as, as Jean-Michel Jarre, and Journey of the Source was still there, but in a rewritten, re-recorded form, which I think was something the BBC did in order to get around some of these copyright and distribution issues. There was another track in there used in the landing on the planet Magrathea, was, I believe, from Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. And certainly on the DVD release, a DVD, certainly on the CD release of the radio series, that scene has simply been removed. Again, I believe, for, for musical copyright issues. I don't know what they did on the record, I haven't gone back and checked it out, but... If it's there at all, then it's been rescored. As I say, I could carry on talking on this topic for hours, or I could have various conversations that, that overall covered a number of hours, but I think this is probably as much as we're going to be able to do sensibly in one podcast. I need to say thank you for Rico for letting me take over Treks in Sci-Fi for one week. I hope I haven't damaged his reputation too much by what I've done with it. Thanks to all you out there too who've been listening to me and, and putting up with all of this this waffle for this whole time, as I say. I'm only here this week. Rico's back next week, as far as I know. So we get back onto a stronger, more more standard footing. Thanks to everyone who's listened. Hope you have a, a good week, and I'm sure I'll see you around at uh, some point soon on the forums. Cheers. <laughs>